0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over our great country. We've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master-planned community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. Some people focus on the fact that this village has beautiful RVs, and gorgeous small homes designed by the finest architects in the nation. But that's not this place's secret sauce. No, it's the people who live and work at Community First that make it transformative. To get a sense of that, we'd like you to hear a story from Larry Crawford, the fellow who fixes anything and everything that breaks in this community, from air conditioners to trucks.
1: Here's Larry. I bought myself a new truck. And I've always been a kind of the base model truck buying kind of guy. And, but I'm a little older now and I have a little more money so my wife went shopping with me and she's like oh I love this leather so what I ended up purchasing was the longhorn Laramie diesel has all these bells and whistles on it's got things on the dashboard I still don't know how to work uh, it's four-wheel drive it's got fancy wheels and running boards and it's just a really a luxury pickup truck and because we're in Texas it's just like a I don't think it's a written law, but it's kind of like a law that when you get a new truck, you got to go show your buddies. You know, you got to go show the guys you work with your new truck. So I'd had the truck about a week. And uh, so I decided to drive it to work and show it to my buddies. And the end of the day, my wife called me and she, she asked me, she's like, Hey, can you go to the grocery store and pick up this one item? And that's several years ago. I don't remember what it was. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I, I leave work and I'm heading down Loyola because there's a H-E-B grocery store at uh, Springdale and 183. So I was heading that way, and I saw this homeless guy that I that I had known for several years walking down the street. And so I just stopped in the middle of the road, rolled the window down. I was like, hey, Mike, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to H-E-B. And I'm like, jump in. So we go to H-E-B, and, and I'm like, I just need one thing. I said, I'm going to go in and get what I need. And then I'll just wait for you at the truck and I'll take you because he lives in a camp uh, not too far from here. And uh, I'll take you back to your camp. And uh, so I, I get my one item and I'm sitting out waiting for him to show up. And he comes out of the store, with two boxes of beer. And and uh, he's, a, he's a profound alcoholic. And uh, I mean, without exaggeration, I've seen him falling down drunk at 7 a.m. uh He's a lovely human being. He just has lost control of his drinking. Anyhow, so I drop him off at his camp. I go home, fix dinner, and the day just ends. I go to bed. You know. And about three weeks later, we do this thing here at the village. We call it Reach Out. And basically, get a bunch of chartered school buses, and we go get the homeless people from the camps in downtown. We bring them out here to the village. We let them take showers. They get haircuts. Get a real good hot meal, not fast food, but good hot meal. Um, you know, there's somebody here that's like nurses and doctors and check their blood sugars and their diabetes and their blood pressure and do all of these things. And um, So anyhow, I'm standing over by the corner of the shop and, and I see Mike get off the bus and he's screaming at me. and uh, And it's not uncommon for homeless people to scream at me because they all want the same thing from me. Uh, I'm a smoker. They want to, Hey, you got a cigar. Do you have a cigarette? Do you, have, you know? And so I knew that's what Mike wanted. So I'm just sitting there kind of silently. And I said, okay, hurry up, Mike. So you can get a smoke from me and I can go on with my business. And he's, as he's approaching me, he's maybe 10 or 12 feet away. And I could already smell him cause he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he drops down to his knees in front of me and he takes this old ratty backpack off. And he's like, man, I got you something. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me something? He said, man, I bought you a present. I'm like, man, you don't have to get me nothing. And he's like, no, no. He said, I see how you treat people on the streets. He said, and I wanted to give you a gift. And he said, I noticed in your old truck, the truck I drive to work, that's sitting out there by the shop right now every day, it's a, an 05 Dodge Diesel. I have the black velour interior, which in 2005 was pretty nice. And um, anyhow, he said, I noticed in your old truck that you had a Bible that had the same color cover as the interior of your truck. And at that point, I'd been driving that truck for like 12 years, and I didn't realize that the cover on my Bible and my black upholstery were the same color, it never occurred to me. Anyhow, so he had ridden in my new truck, and he said, I got you a Bible that has the same color leather as the leather on the seats in your new truck. And he said, I went to the Bible store. He said, I didn't even realize there was more than one kind of Bible. He said, I told the lady, just sell me the most popular one that had this color of leather. He said, the receipts in the box. He said, and the lady said, you can bring it back and get whatever kind of Bible you read if this is not what you want. And I can tell you right now, it wouldn't matter which Bible it could have been any it could have been a Bible in a foreign language. I wouldn't have traded it back in. And at that point, moment, man, my eyes started leaking. I wasn't like crying or nothing, but I was just like, I just like couldn't believe that this guy, which is like the poorest of all the poor people that you ever met, had bought me a Bible to match the interior of my truck and and the thought kept going through my head. It's like, man, I, this guy could take this back, get his money back. This, I'm driving an expensive truck. I live in a nice house. I could go buy a box of Bibles and wouldn't even miss the money. But I, and I just get, something kept telling me it's like, no, you need to take this gift from this man." And, and I did. And I still have that Bible still in my truck. And um, uh, it was a lesson for me in the unbelievable generosity of human beings that man probably panhandled for weeks to be able to get enough money for his daily survival and then be able to accumulate the $77 he paid for that Bible. Uh, not realizing that he probably could have just went to the local church and asked for one. They probably would have gave him one for free. He didn't get that. But, but anyhow, so the struggle that man went through to get that, uh, it's one of my most valued possessions. And uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything
0: great job on that stand and what a message of generosity it can come from anywhere and we do these stories about the homeless about prison inmates right next to entrepreneur stories stories about billionaires because in the end these are all great american stories and show our heart and our soul larry crawford's bible story here on our american stories This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about just about everything here on the show. And this next story, it's all about the tow truck. Here's Monty
2: Montgomery. They get us out of ditches. They're on call 24-7 to assist us on some of our worst days. They can also be an unhappy sight for people who forget to pay their bills or how to park. I'm, of course, talking about the tow truck, a machine that we often forget the importance of. But behind the wheel of these trucks are men and women dedicated to what they do. The tow truck industry is is a 24-7 industry. You know, if someone's broke down
3: at 3 a.m., someone needs to come out and get them. It's very similar to the first responders. They they kind of go hand in hand with that. Um, They're very close with that community also. You know, because if you if you think if you see a wreck on the highway, what are the three things you see? You see the ambulance, you see a fire truck, and then you see a tow truck. These guys are very dedicated to the people that they serve. They want to be out there and they they sacrifice a lot. You know, they sacrifice their a lot of their personal life to do it. Because, you know, if they're on call twenty-four seven, they're gonna be getting calls twenty-four seven. The the nature of the industry is a Samaritan industry anyway. You know, you you break down the side of the road. You're going to come out and, and, you know, help the person. They're very proud of what they do because they know that their industry isn't super well-known. It's not something that people talk about on a regular basis.
2: In the United States, the majority of tow trucks are owned and operated by private family enterprises. And that's always been the case, even down to the very first tow truck made by Chattanooga native Ernest Holmes Sr.
3: Um, So, Ernest Holmes, Sr., he he started the tow truck, he invented it originally around 1917, 1918, when he got the patent for it. He had a friend of his who had broken down and he was basically stuck in a ditch out in the middle of nowhere, and he called him and he said, hey, I need you to come out and come get me. So, he comes out, six guys from his garage, and it took them all day to get the car up out of the ditch, and he said, well, I feel like there's a better way to do this.
2: So Holmes took his 1913 Cadillac and strapped several pulls to the back. And thus, the tow truck was born. And he patented his design, which was not only functional, but relatively simple.
3: So they came up with the first record. But it was all hand crank. There was there were no electric motors, anything like that. But it was a what they call a split boom design, where you would have one boom would anchor the car to the ground or to a tree so you would have this cable attached to a tree and then you would use the other one attached to the vehicle and you would pull it up from wherever it came from so that's what was kind of a revolutionary idea and then that that kind of just kind of took hold as far as wreckers went from there on out he was being the original inventor
2: of course the tow truck was an almost immediate success due to its simple solution to a problem which had previously plagued early motorists and Ernest Holmes started receiving orders from all over the United States. The Ernest Holmes company was quickly expanding.
3: After he had come up with the idea of the wrecker and it started selling, he knew he needed more space. So he bought a large piece of property, um, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and built up a company where they were solely building wreckers. By the 1930s, they were building a couple thousand a year and selling them. Now, for that time period, that was a lot. You know that you got to remember that back then, you know, we didn't have as many connections, so it was more of a direct sale kind of thing. Where it was like, if someone in Louisiana needed a wrecker they would have to reach out to get one. So essentially, he he had built that up from the ground up, solely producing wreckers. Interesting tidbit of information: with any of the wreckers, they were almost always named based on how much they cost. So. If it was a 460, it cost 460 dollars. The 485 and the 110 were the f- couple of the first that were massively produced, being that you know one was 485 dollars, one was 110 dollars.
2: Ernest Holmes Sr. also contributed in a massive way to the arsenal of democracy in World War II. His
3: assets were frozen for military use when the war began, so they were dedicated to building solely military wreckers. Now, in the time time period between 1940 and 1945, he built about 7,500 of them, but most of them were used with what was called the Red Ball Express. After D-Day, when they had a supply chain set up to follow the front as it went through Europe, these trucks were used to ferry supplies back and forth from the coast, and uh, the wreckers were part of that. Um, They were used to keep the roads clear for the supply trucks, for the tanks, for the infantry, you know, if, if something was broken down or there was a destroyed tank in the road or a jeep or something like that, they were called in to remove them from the road. They were used for salvage even after the war effort when, when they were cleaning up from all the, the wreckage and everything. They would be out there pulling these tanks up out of the ditches, trying to clear these fields that were people's farms and homes. But yeah, that was that's primarily what they were used for.
2: Ernest Holmes Sr. continued to expand his business, building more and more wreckers and continuing to refine his invention to be more efficient. Holmes was also active in his community though.
3: He was extremely active in his Presbyterian church. Um, he was a, a, a huge proponent for a lot of youth programs and that kind of thing. Um, he was also extremely active in the local country club, uh, the Chattanooga Country Club. He loved golf. He would spend pretty much all of his extra time playing golf, which kind of ended up being one of the reasons he, he was in very good health for a long time. Unfortunately for him, he, had kind of a tragic death. He was a young man when he passed away. Um, he had gone out and played golf that day. He came home played a, a game of bridge with some friends. And by that evening, he was just said to his wife, hey, I'm, I'm not feeling well. And in a few hours, he was dead.
2: The innovative company that Ernest Holmes had started would be passed on to his son, Ernest Holmes Jr., who would continue to expand upon what his father had started. After his father
3: passed away, the the man that originally invented the tow truck, he took over and he was responsible for a lot of the growth of the Holmes company um, because his father was only in business for about 40 years prior to that and it was pre-war era, that kind of thing. Um, He took it from that and, and made it into a modern entity. Um, and, and they developed uh, probably a good dozen more models worth of wreckers. They introduced the rail crane, which is one of the, f- the first, uh, basically, a wrecker for trains. So he, he was the, the leader of the growth era for that
2: brand. The company that Holmes Jr. took over would eventually break records, too. Records that still stand today. In, in the late 70s, um, <laughs>
3: they had gone through a uh, time period where they felt that they would. They got very involved with the Indianapolis Speedway um, for obvious reasons. I mean, if there's wrecks and whatnot on the on the course, you need someone to come out and pick it up. Well, they kind of got this wild hair to, you know, let's see how fast we can make this wrecker go. <laughs> so uh, working with some guys in NASCAR, and uh, obviously, like I said, they had been in Indianapolis. They ended up going down to Talladega in Alabama and said, Let's see how we can get how fast we can get it to go after they had built the engine in this, and it set the the world speed record for a record of 109 miles an hour.
2: The Ernest Holmes Corporation wasn't just making fast tow trucks, though. They were also presenting a business model based on fast service, just like the family-run garages on call 24/7 that they served.
3: They had a very good reputation with. The wrecking community, the, the the tow truck industry, the people on the ground, the boots on the ground, because their their priority was to make sure that you kept your business going. You know, these guys, if, if your if your truck was broken down or your wrecker wasn't working, you weren't making money. So the Holmes Company at the time, their biggest focus was getting parts and service out to their people as quickly as possible. Uh, as soon as order came in, I mean, it was going back out the same day. Um, And that was was a big priority for them. And that's what really set them apart from the rest of the competition at the time.
2: The Ernest Holmes company would eventually be sold to the Dover Corporation in 1973 for $15 million. But that wasn't the end of the Holmes family being involved and innovating in the wrecker industry. Jerry Holmes, Ernest Holmes Jr.'s son, would be one of the first people to invest in the hydraulic wrecker. The Holmes family invested in a new idea Pioneered their own industry. It's easy to forget how important this oftentimes underappreciated invention is to millions of Americans. But tow trucks are truly the unsung heroes of the highway.
4: And
0: good job as always, Monty, and a special thanks to Niall Vincent and the International Museum of Towing in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we bring you these stories sometimes just for general fun, But remember, it's tinkerers that solve these problems. Guy sees a bunch of buddies with a truck on the road, a car stuck, and improvises. And go to our story on The Wright Brothers, because you'll find the same kind of spirit. And David McCullough does a beautiful job telling that story about a couple of bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, who start to tinker with this idea of going to flight and solving a problem that governments and top scientists from around the world were trying to solve. But in the end, it was just two guys, two hobbyists, goofing off in Kitty Hawk and playing with wind tunnels that got it done. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to see the Wright Brothers story. And this one just sort of reminded me of that same kind of spirit. The story of the tow truck here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In
4: 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really, the Beastie Boys Barely Out of Their Teens had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act
2: tell about three bad brothers you know so well, it started way back in history with that Rob, <laughs> and me. My
4: the cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and the Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Rubin's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin.
5: The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. The 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 records that were made early in the years of hip hop, they were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching and it was beats. Anyone who can make a
6: cripple man dance by using his mouth, if he give me a chance.
5: I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC.
4: Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenage boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D.
7: Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led
2: Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess, in that sense kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. He kind of definitely brought that that kind of in in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like, Led Zeppelin having beats or you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever.
4: Here's Ruben.
5: I grew up on Long Island and kinda liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different
4: places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin Tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys' video is at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is
5: because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long.
4: The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Minello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre.
6: So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap.
4: On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience the black audience at the Apollo which a white audience sits there and goes okay entertain me a black audience goes what you got what you got sucker basically because they they want to be entertained and when the Beasties first came on they were not greeted with with widespread approval but usually by the end of their set they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly.
6: We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming the hollering trying to get to them. wanting to have a good time, and and loving the guys, just generally because they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, The beats were very aggressive. So in hip hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC, so those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big ba ba boom bap and all that craziness. All we did is just scratch it, so you heard the boom boom da boom boom So we always used the similar beats, so it was kind of like right there on the same thing, but uh, it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different.
4: Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC.
6: And I remember these guys coming out and doing hold it not hit it, and the crowd went crazy. Every- I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, c- to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. And that's Kim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage, because everybody felt like they were their little brothers, like... They were open up for us. It was like the black audience. And we could be like down in the south, down in Texas or down in South Carolina in some really southern black Negro town. And when the Beasties came out and um, Dr. Dre was scratching and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming,
5: it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These
6: white boys are good. Say ho, ho.
4: Here's Public Enemies chuck d they was almost
6: like the flip side like jackie robinson was the baseball the beastie boys were to rap music
4: here's beastie boys mca and mike d
7: when we first came
2: out making hip-hop people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip-hop or doing it too much so Like, I guess a lot of kids would just
6: check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what? You guys are white?
2: Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time.
0: And when we come back, more on the life and the work Of the Beastie Boys, and we love music here, every kind. From Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, we do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler.
4: From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds. One in the hip-hop world, and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three jerks make a masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that's sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian Joan Rivers.
1: Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right?
4: That's ill,
1: John. Well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album.
2: Do you think they know the note of jealousy in
7: your voice, Joe? you gone platinum in four weeks. Anyhow,
4: it didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer. Adams.
7: I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out and he says to me, goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be you know, on American Bandstand and we're going to do Soul Train and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going <laughs> to do that. And the record came out and it exploded. And literally in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train For Don Cornelius. And I I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did.
4: Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified Diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run-DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part Two. But instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more Cowbell. With their Commodore's powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. obviously really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record. Nobody would heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that.
2: It's just this beautifully
5: layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick. They sampled David
3: Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears. They were open to everything.
4: And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could
7: still use
4: recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but... It was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George.
6: Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were gonna grow with them. And what happened is the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans.
4: Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, Nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots.
6: They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it.
4: Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. You know you you know the record's blend of punk funk and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Lincoln Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach.
7: It's a phenomenon how influential they are
4: on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant um, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend Tony Hawk.
7: These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate Punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of of our interests would have.
4: The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These
1: guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah. Me too. <laughs>
4: According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song "Mullet Head" on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994 that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii 5 Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To the Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix-Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix-Up, Adam MCA Yauch was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. The following month, Adam MCA Yauch died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and AdRock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like music. Our Arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the Fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well... They're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for the backstory, where we dive into the names, brands, places, and things that you know but whose backstories you might not know. And today, Alex Cortez brings us the backstory of Kay Coles James, the first female and the first black president of the Heritage Foundation, which has been named the most powerful think tank in the world. And her backstory is not what you might expect.
8: Kay Coles James says she isn't a victim, but a survivor.
7: My father suffered debilitating alcoholism. My mother was struggling with you know six children and trying to figure out how to raise them with a husband that was struggling with his alcoholism and he was abusive and all of that. I I cannot imagine what it must have been like for my father that had so many aspirations, so many dreams. It's a real Romeo and Juliet kind of story by the way. My mother came from a very well-to-do family in Richmond and it was all girls. My father came from Charlottesville, Virginia from a very established sort of well-to-do family but both of them were sort of the rebels of the family and they fell in love at a very early age. I actually have a brother that did, that my mother got pregnant before she was married. But back in those days, there were the honorable men and they married the women. And my father married my mother and the child died. He was James. So her family blamed him for ruining her life. His family blamed her for ruining, did I get that right? Yeah, both families blamed each other. It's really interesting. I discovered that I had an aunt when I was probably in my late 40s, early 50s that I didn't know existed, my father's sister. And she was able to bring a lot of color to me and understanding about the complexity of my father and the relationships. And one of the things she said to me is, Kay, I think your mom and dad could have made it if both families had stayed out of it. And uh, she said they were so in love. And she gave me a picture, um, which I don't have here, I have at home, of them before they were married when they were so young and beautiful and in love. And uh, it's just sad that the marriage didn't work and the struggle ensued. And it's so sad because my father had so many dreams. He studied chemistry, wanted to go to med school, sang opera, uh, had a great musical talent. And when he married my mother, all of those dreams were deferred. He had a family to take care of, dropped out of school and did menial tasks for most of his life. And I think he tried to hide the disappointment and the pain in alcohol. I can only imagine um, what he had to go through, not only with the dreams deferred, but also with the challenges of race in Virginia during those days was difficult for both of them
8: her dad was a champion debater and is the captain of the black high school's all-time best debate team his portrait hung in their hallway for more than 50 years but Kay wrote that without more education there weren't many opportunities for an articulate black man in those days and the pain was especially difficult on one particular night
7: Well, yeah, he he did get drunk, and, and, oh, it was a horrible night. I do remember that night as though it were yesterday where he fell off the balcony of our home, and I, I think the reason it was so traumatizing is, I think the alcohol actually saved his life, by the way. I think because he was so loose and free when he fell that somehow that provided some sort of protection and and the ambulance took him away and he obviously survived the fall but uh, they had laid him on the sofa and the two youngest my youngest brother and i we were i mean we lads uh they laid us on that sofa and i could see the blood spots and i didn't want to touch them and it was just sort of a traumatizing we held on to each other um but it didn't kill him that night but it eventually did my mother she um she walked through that period with a grace and dignity that i can only imagine i do remember the the fights i do remember the screaming i do remember the crashing uh ashtray or lamp downstairs and huddling with my brothers upstairs and praying that everything would be okay I do remember my older brothers who sort of intervened in all of that, but she would uh, clear the tears and uh, straighten up and say, we will go on, there are things that we must do, we will survive, and I'll I'll tell you, just recognizing now as an adult and looking back and thinking about the pressure and what she must have been under, was incredible she had such a strong strong sense of morality of right and wrong of achieving and and everything that was embodied in my mother is what i see as sort of the essence of of america the essence of who we are of what we believe the values that i learned growing up from a mom who was struggling to survive are the values that carry me today. Um, just because we were poor didn't mean we had to be dirty. Just because we were poor didn't mean we didn't have to speak correctly. Just because we were poor didn't mean we didn't have pride. And so you know, I look at young children today and think if they could have those same values, those same lessons, it, it, it could be tremendous in terms of encouraging them.
0: And you're listening to a unique American voice, and that's Kay Coles James, the president of the Heritage Foundation and the author of Never Forget, the riveting story of one woman's journey from public housing to the corridors of power. Pick it up at Amazon.com or go to a local bookstore. Heck, buy a book and read it. This is Our American Stories. Kay Coles James' story continues after these messages. we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Kay Coles James. When we left off, she was growing up in Richmond, and that's Richmond, Virginia, during the height of segregation.
7: Creighton Court was a beautiful place. They had opened up these new things called public housing. And I I, I just remember that I think we were one of the first families in Creighton Court And I just thought it was a beautiful place. It was well-kept, not at all what you think of in terms of public housing today. So, of course, I'm talking over 65 years ago, and the people who came there were so grateful for the opportunity to have a roof over their heads. I know my mother was.
8: In spite of the hundreds of cockroaches.
7: You know, that came later. We were there for many, many years um, and it did deteriorate over time and many of the pathologies that we associate with public housing did eventually creep in over the years and um, yes, you, you It seemed beautiful to me, but, you know, what did I know? My mother was dealing with it and making it beautiful. It was beautiful because it was her space. It was beautiful because our family was together. Uh, It was not beautiful because of the cinder block, literal cinder block walls and concrete floors. Your listeners, if they're over a certain age, may know the term linoleum. We had linoleum on the floor. There were no carpets or anything like that. But yes, laying in bed at night, listening to the fights downstairs, trying to go to sleep by counting cockroaches on the wall, that all became a part of it. But when you're that age, you don't, you know.
8: You don't know anything different. And there was always work to distract them.
7: You know, the work ethic was just embedded in us, Embed- embedded in us. My brothers did everything from clean out people's garages to the favorite thing was caddying on the golf course. And my brothers learned a lot on the golf course. They, They actually had a front row seat on the business conversations. They had a front row seat in manners and civility and how people, you know, behave in those circumstances. Golf did a lot for them other than the things you might think of. They also heard people talking about money and wealth and they knew that it was out there and they knew that it might be achievable for them. Uh, And they learned a good game of golf as well that gave them something they could do together for the entire rest of their lives. They knew that the Jewish golfers had as much, uh, almost as much discrimination as they did, and there was a bond that that developed between them, and uh, and a camaraderie uh, that I think, you know, we saw play out in its full way, even in the civil rights movement, where the Jewish community had a quicker, better, faster understanding of and because of their experience. And so the the linkage was there. And I think I saw that. My brothers actually said they saw that play out in the relationships that existed on the golf course. And when they got paid, they put half the money in one pocket and other half in the other pocket. And that half went home to my mother. They realized that Our family all had to work and pull together to survive, and they wanted to do their part. But my mother was adamant about the fact that they needed to understand that we would do it correctly, and we would never steal, we would never. (laughs) I remember when my brother, uh, one of my older brothers, was so proud that he had broken into the local high school school with some of his friends and they had stolen some food out of the kitchen and they all brought it home to their moms and some of the moms were like wow we're gonna eat good tonight my mother opened the back door threw the chickens frozen chicken out into the yard and said "Uh, i'd rather starve than eat stolen food don't you ever do that again and my brother was in shock because all the other moms were like happy pleased but you know as a result of that I think that our family learned some valuable lessons about integrity and honor and truthfulness and all of that so um, we may not have had chicken that night but I think we had a great big healthy serving of of good parenting you know the message that um, that was so clearly sent to those other those other kids those other young men, is that stealing was okay if you needed it, if you were hungry, if you needed to provide. So if stealing was okay, then maybe selling drugs was okay. Maybe uh, breaking into homes was okay. And that mom who thought she was doing something great by preparing a wonderful meal out of that chicken didn't realize that by not teaching her kids that she was setting them up. For tremendous failure in life and perhaps even imprisonment or death, that uh, building character and integrity in your kids can save their lives. I think we forget that fairly often that and sometimes I have to remember that even here at the Heritage Foundation, we spend so much time on you know our national defense policy, our domestic policy. And yet, a part of what we sincerely believe here, and it's a part of our mission and core, is civil society and those institutions in civil society that make a nation great. One of those institutions is family. Uh, my mother embedded in me, I saw it work out in her, and I tried to live it out with my own family. I don't think that we give moms enough credit I think mothers are the theologians in the home. Where's dad when kid the kid asks, how come I can't see God? You know, she's got to be able to interpret that. She is the first responder in terms of discipline. You know, there's no wait till your dad gets home. She has to take care of that situation right then. She is the educator. Because a lot of times the child just doesn't understand what's being taught in that elementary school and she's got to make sure she's get, She's an educator. She's a first responder. She's the theologian. And she has the opportunity to shape a nation. I used to actually say this when I was speaking to women's groups and it was shocking in the moment, but I honestly believed it. I said, if you want to save this country, go home. And I gave them two assignments. One was to discipline your children. And the second was to seduce your husband. (laughs) Because strong families, keeping marriages together, and raising great kids is one of the best things we can do to save a nation. It was so funny. I still have in my attic at home letters from husbands saying thank you thank you thank you for that but there was also one very poignant story that came as a result of that i'll do this without crying i had given that speech and i told the single women to save all the fancy lingerie for the married women because we needed it they could keep the flannel and the pajama pants um And I told them to stop at Victoria's Secret after they left this women's Christians conference and I needed them to buy something really special for their husbands. And then I wanted them to seduce their husbands and that would be a wonderful thing they could do for America. Strong marriages. So one woman wrote me a letter and she said that um, I want to thank you for giving me the courage to do that. I never had. I came home in the middle of the day and my husband was cutting the grass, and I invited him to come in. And uh, she said he cried and said that that was one of the most special things that ever happened. And he died in a car crash a couple of weeks later. And she wrote me to say thank you for giving me that afternoon with my husband before he died. Oh my gosh. And I still have that letter up in my attic somewhere. So if it didn't, if that crazy speech didn't do anything else, it did do that.
0: Well, and hopefully that speech is inspiring women across the country to do the same. I know there are many husbands who'll be happy for the sage advice of Kay Coles James. And we're talking to the president of the Heritage Foundation and her book, Never Forget the Riveting Story of One Woman's Journey from Public Housing to the Corridors of Power is one that's available on Amazon.com and available at bookstores, too. But read the book, and you're hearing the voice, and my goodness, what wisdom. And that lesson learned when that mom said, I'd rather starve than eat stolen food. Don't ever do that again, is so true. Civil society such an important and fundamental part of our country, and that's families, that's churches, that's VFWs, the social capital that makes America hum. Kate Coles James, her life story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of Kay Coles, James. At this point, her family is receiving welfare. Their father is no longer living with them in the public housing project.
7: The The story of my mother and the, the social worker, The um, a part of the welfare system in, Virg- in Virginia and everywhere, actually, for a long time, was that it was discouraging marriage. And the welfare workers would show up unannounced to see if you had someone either living in the home or you had gotten married or hadn't told them or something. And when going through things and looking in closets, saw a pair of my brother's big shoes because they were big guys, and she she accused my mother of having a man living in the house, and she became very upset, emotional, and it upset my brother to the point that as the story goes, I think he actually got a broom out of the broom closet and, and chased the woman out of the house, chased her down the street. But what that did do was to say to the family, we got to get off of this. You know, no more welfare for us.
8: And this brother, Ted, decided to drop out of high school to work full-time and provide more for their
7: family. Mm-hmm. He did. He did he you know i i none of them ever completed college only uh two i think got partial college education but i think because of the values and the things that in, my mom instilled and in recognizing the value of manual labor and how it can improve lives every one of them ended up married owning their own homes um and just being good men.
8: And there was a strong community of good men and businesses in the black parts of Richmond.
7: There, there was an entire ecosystem. I'm about to go over to the Department of Energy and give a speech and talk about how I approached welfare reform in Virginia. I wanted to go back to a post-Civil War era, look at Reconstruction and come up uh, to the early, early 20th century and sort of figure out how did we do that? How do we come out of slavery with nothing, sometimes not even, you know, anything but the clothes on our back, and build businesses and universities and build strong, intact families? There was a period where we had Black Wall Street. We had the Harlem Renaissance, you know, with the arts and all of that. How do we do that? Because I was curious, if we were able to do that as a people coming out of slavery, how is it that we can't accomplish that and more with some assistance and help from the public and private sector? Because we did that with nothing. And now with all of this, we can't. What's the difference? So when I went back and listened to the slave narratives, And when I read their stories to try to discern how to develop great policy that could contribute to human flourishing today, there were some things that shocked me. All of those efforts were made within the community. So immediately, moms went in search of their children to rebuild their families. There were husbands who walked for months and went from plantation to plantation to find their wives. So you can't tell me that slavery beat it out of us or destroyed the American family because there were many more strong, intact families in a post-Civil War era than there are today. So something else happened, and we needed to figure that out. So I knew strong families mattered. I knew that education was a key because immediately they began to build private schools all over the South to educate the freed slaves so everything that we do in this country undermines the very things that our people need in order to succeed and so we've got to make sure that government isn't interacting with its people in such a way that is harmful and not helpful.
8: When the greatest form of help is parent to child and neighbor to neighbor. And these neighbors had fun when they were in financial need.
7: If you are a little short, you you take the, the $60 that you had, go to the grocery store, buy some food, sell dinners, uh let people play cards or gamble in the back room uh buy one bottle of liquor and sell it by the shot and you could take that 60 and turn it into 160 and perhaps have enough to make all of your bills
8: and even though her dad wasn't always there this community of parental figures were including aunt nervy kay wrote that woman whipped us more often than her own mother did I never have quite figured out who she was. I don't think she was even a relative. She'd never threatened us with, I'll tell your mama. She took care of business right there on the spot.
7: I haven't thought about some of this stuff in years. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I covet that. I covet that for communities today. I see it in my daughter's neighborhood where the friendships are so strong and the kids are close That they look out for each other's kids. But there was nothing, I mean that's the way it used to be in in the public housing projects, where if you did something wrong the the neighbor could spank you and send you home and say that she was going to call your mom and you'd get another one when you got home. Well you try that today and you're going to end up in jail for spanking some other parent's kids. But there was a sense of community and looking out for each other. Even, even the, the criminal element in the community had honor. You know, they would be playing dice, games of crap or whatever you call it on the sidewalk, but would move aside if an older woman came by or asked ask, uh, Miss Sue if she needed help taking the groceries up. Because even those guys who were hanging out and uh, gambling had respect and honor for, for the older folks who were there.
8: But some of the black kids outside of the projects who were just up the hill from them said things that didn't show the same respect or sense of community with them.
7: Uh, yeah, the N-word, project people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, well, there's also the you know the rivalry between... The kids who live in the projects and the rich kids who live, you know, further away and up. So f- for us, it was a double whammy. It was racism and then not even being accepted within your own community because you're poor. Um, so we had it coming from sort of all directions. But I'll tell you recognizing how important community is and how we survived with the community institutions that I remind myself even here at Heritage on a daily basis that while we're working on the national debt and while we're concerned about, you know, what's gonna happen in our foreign policy with China, and what are we gonna do in the Middle East, and that a, a, a good portion of what our mission says is that we will also promote a civil society And commit to human flourishing. And it's those institutions, exactly like those that made us strong back then, that we need to strengthen today.
0: And so well said, and the heart of any civil society is the marriage. And the privilege I've written about a lot for Newsweek is the father privilege, because it's the big one. And so many outcomes stem from no fathers in the home or no fathers in a community. And when we come back, we return with Kay Coles James and her life story, and my goodness, the story of her brothers just getting it done and doing what they had to do, and the lives they led uh, without formal college education. As she said, they all ended up marrying and owning their own homes. They were good men, and that meant a lot, and it still means a lot in neighborhoods here and everywhere. When we continue more of the life of K. Coles James, her story here on our American Story. And we continue with our American stories in the final portion of Kay Coles James's story. And it's an extraordinary one. Let's continue.
7: Can you imagine you have six kids and you let your three youngest go stay with your sisters because they're doing well. They have wonderful, beautiful homes and great jobs and all of that. And I don't know how I understood this as a kid, except by the grace of God. But uh, I was crying because I didn't want to go with my aunt. I wanted to stay with my mother and my brother's. And my mother was hugging me and she was whispering, you know, I chose you to go live with them because you're going to have a really great life. And she said, if you stay here in these streets, they will destroy you. And she said, a little boy can play in the gutter and get up the next morning and put on a clean white shirt and nobody thinks anything about it. She said, that may not be fair, but that's just the way it is. And she said, I don't want you playing in these gutters. And so I understood that my mother was sending me to live with her sister because she thought it was the best thing for me. I don't know how I remember what she said, except it had a tremendous impact on a five-year-old um, But a little boy can play in the gutter and get up the next morning and put on a white shirt, and nobody thinks anything of it.
8: And with her aunt and uncle, Kay seemed to have everything. Nice brand-new clothes, her own bed for the first time, even her own bedroom, no cockroaches. And yet she wept all that first night.
7: Oh, I cried many nights. I cried many nights. And I think any kid would. Um, You don't care about that stuff and the pretty clothes or bed. You just want your mom. You just want to go home and be with your brothers. I'd put up with anything. But I adjusted and kids can and will and do adjust. Um, I would not trade that time with my aunt and uncle for anything. There were many things that I learned and privileges that I had with them that I couldn't have gotten with my mother. So in his infinite wisdom, God gave me everything that I needed uh, to survive uh, and to be where I am today.
8: And while living with her aunt and uncle, Kay attended a school called Webster Davis.
7: I went there because that's where my aunt, who I lived with, taught. It's not because that was the school in my district. So my view of elementary education is a little different when you sometimes ride to school with the principal or one of the teachers, and you know and so this was out of a relatively poor community at the time, Fulton, I don't even know if Fulton uh has been bulldozed over i think in in Richmond these days, but it was a it was a good opportunity to learn uh I had teachers that if they came along today. They would be, you know, CEOs of major chemical companies uh, if they were a chemistry teacher or at MIT. But the only opportunity for an African-American back then was to either teach or go into a trade, become a minister or something like that. So I had great teachers. I had phenomenal teachers. Uh, Mr. Kemp, Miss Hembry. Uh, Miss Woltz. I still remember a few of the names. The principal was uh, Miss Lewis, Miss Patterson. Isn't it amazing I can ring off all those names some, you know, sixty-five years ago? But it's because they had such a profound impact, and the things that they were able to teach in schools. We opened every day with the pledge of allegiance, a prayer, and a psalm. We had to memorize psalms in elementary school, public schools. I'm so glad that I had the nurturing of those teachers that got me prepared for the hell that was about to come.
8: Kay was one of the very first black students to integrate Richmond schools.
7: It was at the height of the civil rights movement, and so our teachers were taking no prisoners. I mean, they were going to make sure we got it. They, they, They told us we're going to be hard on you here because they're going to be hard on you out there and it's our job to get you ready. And yes, we got all the messages. You're going to work twice as hard just to stand in place because you don't have all of the opportunities that they had. And I am grateful for that. They did not allow us to uh, speak in substandard English because they wanted us to be able to move easily within the larger community. I got so many lessons. And and it's amazing to me when kids are denied those opportunities to have those kinds of lessons. And I say that today what we're seeing in a lot of our urban areas and in a lot of our minority communities are the unintended consequences of their misguided compassion the unintended consequences of their misguided compassion. I don't think that that some of the policymakers who were trying to come up with how do we eliminate poverty, how do we help poor people, they were compassionate people and they thought they were doing the right things. They were not. They were not. You know those names I just called off a few minutes ago? Uh, they knew. They got it. And they didn't water down the curriculum for us. They made it harder. They didn't overlook discipline and bad behavior. They were harder on us at school than than anywhere, uh, except at home, where it was even harder. You know, so they were not making excuses for us or not. Um, compa- they, they understood that love and compassion meant. Raising us to be tough and to be strong.
8: Kay wrote in her book, I'm thankful that I never encountered one of those quote-unquote enlightened teachers so common in our universities and civic groups these days who fill young minds so full of the wrongs done to them that young persons become overwhelmed at the thought of overcoming. And she wrote that in 1992.
7: Oh, my word, they're raising a whole generation of little nervous Nellie Snowflakes, and bless their hearts. Uh, then they come into the workforce, and <sighs> thankfully, thankfully, uh, one of the things that I've learned, particularly after spending time with the interns here at Heritage, is uh, I need to stop talking like that because it's not an entire generation. <laughs> Some of these kids are, are incredible, have a Tremendous work ethic are kids of character and integrity. Uh, I have loved being here and meeting these kids. I met with our interns, about 60 of them, yesterday. And uh, it was one of the most... It always, always encourages me to spend time with them. You know, I have had the... Uh, the Lord has blessed me with the opportunity to be around some of the richest most powerful Americans, as well as some of the poorest and powerless Americans. And I have seen everything upside down. I have seen rich people who were sad and depressed and unhappy. And I have seen poor people who were strong and seeking the opportunities that this country has and and being in a wonderful place and being extremely happy, not with their circumstances, but within the context of their lives. So a long time ago, I figured out that that in life, it isn't your circumstances as much as it is your response to them and how you deal with them. Um, I am sitting right now in one of the most beautiful offices in the most powerful city with an institution that has been named the most powerful think tank in America. Um, but when I go out on Sunday afternoon to my daughter's house, my grandkids just wanna know, am I gonna fix dinner? <laughs> That's all they care about, I'm gonna read them a story. And, and I think it's, it's so good to be able to have that balance and that grounding and that perspective. It helps you stay sane in this town, I think. And when people tell me about your unique story, I say, I have come to understand that my story is not unique. And I wish we could do a whole series on the stories that came out of Creighton Court. I mean, there there, there are lawyers and doctors and politicians and successful people. I am not an anomaly. I am not anything odd. Um, I am like most of the people that I know that have success. Few people have the opportunity to be born you know, into wealth, into privilege, into power. And the rest of us have to work hard and are grateful for the lessons that life teaches us and grows us into this. So my story is not unique in any way.
0: It is not unique in any way, but of course it's unique in a special way, as all great American survivor and victor stories are. And Kay Coles, James's mother, would not let her kids be victims. And they wouldn't just merely be survivors. They'd be victors. And my goodness, the clarity with which she understood the power of her mom's vision for her own family and the courage it took to forge A new life for her kids and the sacrifices her mom made, her brothers made, uh, a remarkable feature of her story. What a voice. You've been listening to Kay Coles James. She's the president of the Heritage Foundation. Pick up her autobiography, Never Forget, the Riveting Story of One Woman's Journey from Public Housing to the Corridors of Power. Go to Amazon.com and order it now. Kay Coles James, her story, and so many like her in this great country, here